You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Strange Familiars, and welcome back, Allison. Hi. Now, so many people have been asking about you. Where's Allison? Where's Allison? So you basically have me on to prove that you didn't hide me in, in the basement under the floorboards. I think, I think some people literally <laughs> You're think... You're exonerating yourself. I think some people literally think I did that. So, welcome back, and thanks for clearing my name. <laughs> yeah, it would make a good story, though. <laughs> for a paranormal podcast yeah but. yeah if you kill the kill the co-host and bury her under the steps well this is our christmas show and i wasn't sure we were going to get to do one this year but here we are i know it's your favorite time of year it is not <laughs> <laughs> well i i don't understand why you'd give a huge amount of time off t- for children at a time when it's dark and you can't do anything yeah yeah like, wouldn't it be better to give, like, a week off in April? Well, I happen to like the wintertime holidays, <laughs> so. Are you, are you rolling back my buzzkillness? I'm sorry. Oh, no, no. I think, no, I, I understand your reasons. I understand your reasons, but. Uh, I don't like the dark. I've always just associated this as a nice time of year. I don't like being hot. <laughs> that's true I like it is it, great sleeping weather i like when it cools off i like hiking this time of year it's my favorite time to hike i'd rather be able to put on an, an extra layer than 
there's only so many you can strip off. And the bugs are not around. No bugs. Raccoons are still out. As as patrons. (laughs) Only for you. As patrons heard if they listened to the last episode. Before we get started, I did want to mention the episode I did with Clint, Screams from Boggy Creek. I talked about my Boggy Creek poster and I put them up on Etsy, and I only put five copies up there, and they all sold, and I didn't realize it. So, I do have more, and I put more up on Etsy, but I don't know if people went and tried to order them and saw it was sold out and gave up. So, I do have more copies, and if those five happen to sell out, there's more after that. It just means I need to put more up on Etsy. So, I have plenty of them. I'll put the link in the show notes for our Etsy store and for that poster specifically. Back, back in the day, long ago, Christmas was a time for ghost stories and spookiness. Was this the 90s? (laughs) (laughs) How long ago was this, Tim? Many, 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 many years ago. Was this before we were alive? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like way back in history, it was a spooky time. It was a time of transition. That sounds like Halloween. Yeah, it really, and it's probably more so, honestly, around Christmas and you'll be thin times, as they say. Which is ironic, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I find it's usually not my thinnest time. No, no. Because of this, ghost stories got associated with Christmas, and really that kind of died out. I think I think as your like, Santa changes to the jolly, happy guy. The Coke from, advertising Santa? Y- yeah, away from the... The, the moralizing dick. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say away from your scary Bell Snickles and Krampuses. <laughs> As Santa changes away from your scary bell stickles and crompuses and becomes this happy, jolly, fat, you know, jiggles like a bowl full of jelly guy. Sort of at the end of the Victorian era there, right? It seems like these ghost stories die away too. And suddenly you get this like kind of saccharine sweet Christmas. Yeah, because I think the natural inclination is maybe not to be jolly at this time. And that's not allowable. Right. So all the spookiness and the, and the sort of edginess of Christmas goes out and you get this cloyingly sweet gumdrop <laughs> Christmas that, that we have nowadays. Where everything's perfect and... Yes, yes. So I'm going to dial back the clock on that. I like that idea a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to bring the ghost stories back. So tonight I've collected a number of ghost stories from old newspapers... So the first one is from the Des Moines Register from the 25th of December, 1887. Do people read the paper on Christmas Day? Sure they did. What else are you (laughs) going to do back in 1887? A Christmas Ghost Story. Boston, December 23rd. Special Register Correspondent. Haunted houses are scarce in this neighborhood. For three years past, the Society for Psychical Research has tried in vain to discover one. It has gone so far as to advertise in the newspapers, but without result. People, it would seem, are not disposed to publish any facts concerning spooks which are likely to depreciate the value of the property they own. Not infrequently, too, the said spooks are more or less identified with family skeletons, (laughs) 
which it is considered undesirable to drag into the light, even for the gratification of scientific curiosity. Anyway, the society has not had, up to the present time, a single opportunity for investigating a single ghost. A short time ago, the Special Committee on Haunted Houses distributed by mail a large number of circulars begging for information regarding such phantasms of the dead, as the person's address might perchance be acquainted with. The committee, so this printed communication announced, would gladly expend both time and money in looking up a really well-authenticated specter. In the accumulation of data, relating to spookical analysis, cash was of no importance whatever. Therefore, anyone who was fortunate as to possess a quasi-proprietorship in an apparition would find it to his advantage, so the circular implied, to communicate with the secretary in Boston. Nevertheless, in response to this appeal, but one favorable answer was received. It came from a gentleman resident in Bath, Maine, who addressed a long letter on the subject to Dr. Q, a member of the committee known to him by reputation. The writer expressed a regret that the distance from Boston would be likely to forbid him the honor of a visit from the Psychical Society representatives. Otherwise, it would have given him great pleasure to afford them an opportunity of becoming acquainted with a ghost which he had in his own family for years. The phantasm in question was that of his wife's maiden great-aunt, an old woman who in her lifetime had devoted her attention exclusively to interfering with other people's private affairs. <laughs> Two years before her death, it seems, she has quarreled with some cousins, to whose kindness she was indebted for shelter, and had promptly altered her will to their prejudice in favor of her niece in Bath. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if this woman was a renter. Yeah, I know. <laughs> On the strength of this beneficent act, she had transferred herself, bag and baggage, without so much as asking for an invitation, to the domicile of her relations by marriage, who enjoyed very little peace of mind during the remainder of the aged spinster's existence, because she was not permitted to run the establishment according to her own notions. The household was kept in perpetual broil. So often did she declare her intention to leave them not one cent of her money that they were agreeably surprised to find themselves named in her will as heirs of her whole fortune, $6,000 and 4% government bonds. But the surprising part of the story, as told by the gentleman of Bath, is yet to come. The old lady had scarcely been put out of the way underground when a series of remarkable phenomena were exhibited in the house she had recently lived in. Only the day after the funeral, one of the children, a girl of six, told her mother with the utmost seriousness that she had seen Auntie walk out of the nursery and into the playroom. Nothing was thought of the speech until a day or two later, when the little girl's brother, three years her senior, declared that he had himself beheld his lamented relative on two or three occasions since the burial, in the act of slipping hastily from one apartment to another. Strangely enough, neither child was the least bit frightened. Both had spoken to the apparition, which upon being accosted vanished with the promptitude suggestive of a conjuring trick. The adult members of the family were rather amused than otherwise by these stories, which were attributed to those elusive fancies so common to imaginative youth. And Aunt Tabitha's spook quickly became a standing joke. It did not remain such long, however. Less than ten days afterwards, the paterfamilias himself was going up the stairs to bed. You don't often get Latin in modern newspapers. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> the paterfamilias himself was going upstairs to bed with a lamp in his hand, when he distinctly saw a queer-looking shadowy figure leaning over the banister rail from above. It was dressed in some stuff resembling calico and bore very much a caricatured resemblance to the late Miss Tabitha. But the shape was so utterly absurd 
as to elicit a burst of uncontrollable laughter from the gentleman, whose passage to his sleeping room was thus unexpectedly interrupted, whereupon the spectre uttered an audible squeak and disappeared. From this time on, scarce twenty-four hours elapsed without an appearance of the ghost. Everybody saw it repeatedly. Regarded from the spectral point of view, it was decidedly unconventional. It was not attired in the fashionable graveyard costume, nor was its makeup calculated to inspire alarm. In fact, its aspect was so grotesquely commonplace, save its unsubstantial character, as to irresistibly excite the risibilities of the beholder. Even the servant, a sober-minded old woman with no superstitious regard for phantoms, was not seriously frightened by it, though somewhat startled at first by the way it had of popping up in unexpected places like a shadowy jack-in-the-box. This, indeed, was the inevitable manner of its visitations. It came not seemingly like any reputable spook to reveal a treasure or to express a crime, but simply for the purposes, so far as anyone might guess, of frightening innocent people out of their wits. For more than three years it kept this sort of thing up, until something happened, which the gentleman of Bath, after telling the story I have briefly quoted, goes on to describe. In his letter sent a few days ago to the distinguished member of the Haunted House Committee in Boston... <laughs> I was unpacking some boxes in the attic, he says. When I heard a slight noise behind me, I turned around quickly, just in time to see the head of the family ghost, as we called the shade of our deceased Aunt Tabby, protruded from an empty trunk which stood open nearby. It was decorated with its usual fringe of Medusa-like curl papers and wore an exaggerated grin that was evidently intended to be terrifying. I was not alarmed, however, having become accustomed to the specters turning up in odd times and places, so I smiled in return and was about to go on with my work without paying further attention to the apparition, when the cover of the trunk from which it had poked its head became from some cause overbalanced and fell, and the lock springing fast and closing the heavy, sole-leather affair hermetically. I had captured a ghost. That was my first idea. My second was that a spook, being of an immaterial consistency, would find no difficulty in making its way out of the worst sort of box. The latter reflection was discouraging. Nevertheless, I did not open the trunk. It was not, however, until two weeks had elapsed, during which nothing whatever was seen of the bogey, that I really began to think I had made a catch. If so, then, what was I to do with it? I puzzled over this question for two more uneventful weeks, at the end of which I chanced to see a copy of the circular issued by your society in Boston. It was an inspiration. Within two minutes I had arrived at a determination. The Psychical Society was in need of a ghost. I had one which I would be only too delighted to dispose. I would send it through your hands, my dear Dr. Q, as a Christmas present to the Committee on Haunted Houses, no sooner thought of than acted upon. The trunk will reach you by express shortly after this letter. The old lady, if you find her inside, will doubtless prove an admirable subject for spookical investigations. Spookical investigation. <laughs> At any rate, you are welcome to her on one condition. She is not under any circumstances to be returned to me. <laughs> the trunk, if you discover nothing in it, is a very serviceable one for traveling. I paid $38 for it less than 10 years ago. Well, you paid less than that at the auction. <laughs> Upon pursuing this astonishing communication, Dr. Q found himself in a somewhat doubtful state of mind. The signature, that of a citizen well-known outside of Bath, gave the statements it contained a credibility they would not have otherwise possessed. At the same time, the story was, on the face of it, an absurdity. It is an axiom, however, with psychical experts that nothing new should be regarded as unworthy of sober investigation. 
Accordingly, the doctor made a point of speaking personally on the subject to each one of the six gentlemen who, together with himself, formed the Committee on Haunted Houses. The facts in the case, he told them, in a briefly circumstantial manner. Concerning the details, he did not feel at liberty to inform them the letter he had received, having been marked private and confidential. The main point was that it had, very likely, a ghost shut up in the trunk. Would his fellow members meet him at a house on Marlborough Street the next Wednesday evening for the purpose of opening said trunk and examining its contents? The fellow members, enthusiasts, every one of them in care of psychical research, looked rather blank at this. They had talked and written a great deal about ghosts from a theoretical standpoint, but the prospect of encountering a real one, however devoutly they had wished for such opportunity, did not seem to render them as happy as might have been expected. Nevertheless, they had all expressed an utmost interest in the matter and promised to be on hand at the time appointed. The trunk arrived just twelve hours later than the letter which accompanied it. It was a huge concern, quite weighty, though apparently empty. Two leather straps and a rope, elaborately knotted, served to render the massive brass lock unconditionally secure. The baggageman said that it was most the biggest he ever see as he carried it upstairs on his shoulder to Dr. Q's library. I guess that was supposed to be some sort of... Uh, I'm guessing some sort of racist patois. (laughs) There it was deposited in a corner to await the time set for opening it. Before this time arrived, Dr. Q was disappointed to receive from four of his six fellow committeemen regrets that it would be impossible for them to be present. They were very sorry to miss meeting in a social way a spook that had come to Boston with such unexceptional credentials, but circumstances over which they had no control rendered it impossible for them to attend. One gentleman was called away on business, another's wife was indisposed, and similarly with the two remaining. Some of them had to update their Instagram. Probably. (laughs) Wednesday evening found Dr. Q smoking a comfortable pipe, in dressing gown and slippers before his library fire. Now and then he looked at his watch expectantly. Two of the committeemen had sent no excuses, and he was waiting for them. The mysterious trunk loomed in the farthest corner, huge and pregnant with imaginary horrors. It was a gruesome hour. The wind howled without, and the rain beat fiercely against the panes. Nine o'clock. Still no one came. Ten. There was a ringing at the front door. It was only a beggar man. The doctor mixed a toddy of such moderate strength as was judiciously calculated to offset the depressing effect of the weather. Eleven. He brewed another glass, just a little stronger this time, which had an encouraging effect. What is a toddy? Just any alcoholic drink? or Is, that is this just when it's hot? Something specific? It is a great thing to be a physician with a special education in pharmacy, (laughs) since one is thus enabled not only to make out a prescription, but to fill it as well. At precisely 11.45 by the clock, this good doctor rose to his feet with an expression of grim determination upon his genial countenance. With his left hand, he grasped a crystal chalice into which he poured a modicum of some precious amber-colored liquid. To this, he added grudgingly a small quantity of boiling water from a little brass kettle that stood in the grate, and finally a precise teaspoonful of powdered sugar. The mixture was carefully stirred and swallowed at a gulp. Ah, said the doctor, that goes to the seat of the disorder, and now for the trunk. Hang me if I don't believe those fellows were afraid to come. But it takes more than one ghost to frighten me. Where's the key? It was enclosed in the letter from Bath. Oh yes, I have it. So here goes. And with this he began to unfasten the straps and the knots with which the trunk was secured, Next, having dragged it out with some difficulty into the middle of the room, he seated himself on it reflectively. Now, said he, it is my opinion that there is nothing either material or spiritual inside of this trunk. It's Schrodinger's trunk. (laughs) 
If there is no ghost within, I am badly sold. If, on the contrary, I should discover a spook, what on earth am I to do with it? In either case, the situation is embarrassing. Before opening it, I will apply my ear to the crack under the lid and listen for a noise. No, there is no sound. I do detect something, however. It is a smell, an earthy odor as of the graveyard. Ha-ha! How weakly superstitious is the human mind. Of course, my imagination is responsible for so absurd an illusion. The key sticks in the lock. Now it turns. So, as I thought, it is empty. Not a thing inside. Yes, by Jove, there is. It is the ghost! The distance from the trunk to the door was perhaps eighteen feet. A practice runner might have covered it in one and a half seconds. The doctor did it in less. There were two or three chairs in the way, but he did not pay any attention to them, whatever. On the landing outside the door, he paused suddenly, as if irresolute. Is it possible, he said aloud, that I'm afraid? It looks so. And yet, what is the use of being a professional hunter of spooks if I haven't the courage to face one? I dare say that many of my fellow searchers for psychic truth would give their boots for such opportunities. I believe I said a few moments ago that it took more than one ghost to scare me. Well, we will test the occurrence of that statement now. And the doctor, laying his hand upon the knob of the door which he had slammed behind him, flung it wide open. Before entering, he stood for a moment on the threshold, held back by an overpowering smell, as of damp and putrid earth, which filled the apartment. The light had grown dim through the failure of the oil in the student lamp in the center of the table, but the trunk in the middle of the room was in plain sight from the hallway, and perched upon its edge could be clearly distinguished a shadowy form and scarcely palpable petticoats. It seemed to beckon with its finger to the doctor, who slowly approached with trepidation, evidently tempered by curiosity. When he had come within ten feet of the shape, it bade him, with a wave of the hand, to halt. He did so, and while waiting for their orders, made a brief comprehensive survey of his strange visitor. Physically, if one may speak of a ghost, she was so excessively attenuated that the doctor could distinctly see the brass lock of the trunk through the place where her stomach ought to have been. About her form were gathered the fold of what looked like very much a faded wrapper. Her face was drawn into a sort of stereotyped grin. Her hair was twisted with earl papers so as to stick out absurdly in every direction. Maybe she was circassian. <laughs> On the whole, there was nothing to her aspect calculated to excite alarm. Her manner, too, seemed to express the most amiable intentions. She shrugged her shoulders, coquettishly, and motioned politely with her hand. The latter gesture was at length made out by the doctor to signify that he should sit down. As he did so, the specter emitted a faintly audible sigh, and simultaneously a stronger whiff of the corpse-like odor was borne to the doctor's nostrils. Her lips moved, as if in speech, but voicelessly at first. At length, the sound she was evidently striving to utter became feebly articulate. "'You horrid man,' she said with a simper and another coquettish shrug. The doctor made no reply. In fact, he could not think of anything to say." I frightened you badly, didn't I? added the spook, becoming more glib as she went on. It was very nice of you to be frightened. I don't think I ever succeeded in scaring anybody before. Since I first made my debut as an apparition, maybe you think it is fun to be a ghost. I used to have fun with the same notion myself, but that is partly the reason I chose to become one. There were some relatives of mine who had treated me very badly, and I wished to prevent them from enjoying peacefully the money <laughs> which was left to them against my own intentions by my will. I resolved to alter the document in their disfavor a long time before my death, but put it off from day to day until it was too late. Under the circumstances, there was nothing left for me to do but haunt them. Personally, I should have preferred to rest quietly in my grave, but I have ever been a slave to duty. <laughs> During my lifetime, I had sacrificed everything for these people, thinking to benefit them by my guidance 
in the conduct of their affairs, I became, rather against my inclination, a member of their household. My grandniece might perhaps have listened to my advice I offered her for the bringing up of her children and the obligations of a housewife. Unfortunately, she was misled by a brute of a husband, who actually swore at me repeatedly, telling me to mind my own damn business or something to that effect. Was it not horrible? The doctor admitted that in his opinion it was. And so, continued the specter, I made up my mind to haunt them. It was my duty, I felt, to punish their ingratitude, and besides, I thought it would be rather amusing. Unhappily, I soon found that these unnatural kinsfolk of mine had no more respect for me dead than living. My attempts at frightening them were received with derision, and their deceased relative and benefactor was held up in the family circle as a subject of scornful jest. And now, after three years spent fruitlessly in the role of a post-mortem nemesis, I find myself shipped off by rail to a distant city I know not where, with no possibility of getting back, unless you will pay the expressage. Surely you will commiserate the position of an unprotected ghost and send me back whence I came. Madam, replied the doctor, after a pause, I regret to say that it is impossible for us to do what you ask. I received the trunk in which you arrived upon the condition that I should not, under any circumstances, return its contents to Bath. This agreement I am bound by honor to fulfill, much as I may regret the inconvenience occasioned to yourself. Any other service which you may be pleased to demand at my hands, I shall be only delighted to bestow. The spook sighed again. You too are a slave to duty, I observe, she said. I regret your decision, but fully sympathize with the honorable sentiment which inspires it. Speaking of sentiment, and with this she simpered horridly, it is such a pity that we did not meet in the past. My Mary used to tell me that I was very beautiful. Did you ever think what a charming thing it would be to be united to a spirit bride, no mortal woman of perishable clay, but an attractive ghost like me? Just move a little closer, won't you? Whoa. This is taking a turn I had not expected. Right? (laughs) I'm sorry to be compelled to inform you, madam, said the doctor, drawing back his chair a foot or so, that I am a married man. May I beg of you to confide this discussion simply to matters of business? I might have been prepared for this, she said. Ten years ago I offered my hand to a person of your unappreciative sex. It was my unselfish object to reform him, for he was addicted to smoking cigarettes and playing pool for drinks. But he refused me. It seems to me that I have been antagonized by fate in everything. Certainly I have been anything but a success as a ghost. There's nothing left for me to do now but to retire permanently to the silent tomb. Farewell. The doctor sat looking at the spot where the apparition had been, but it was gone, and strange to say the trunk had vanished also. No, there it was, over in the farthest corner, where it had stood before, tied up with the same ropes and straps. Rising hastily, he took the key from his pocket, to which he had previously returned it, and having cut the fastening, unlocked the trunk, and raised the lid, it was empty. No sign of a spook, nor anything else for that matter, was to be found inside. By Jove, exclaimed the doctor, fairly aghast with astonishment, if that don't beat the Dutch. The moisture-laden east wind was blowing through the open library window, bringing with it an unpleasant fragrance from the distant bone factory. The doctor shut it, put out the diminished flame of the lamp, and went to bed. But why is it that his astonishing experience is not to be embalmed in the archives of the Society for Psychical Research, simply because his fellow members of the Haunted House Committee have assumed a derisive attitude regarding the doctor's story, which they are disposed to consider a dream from beginning to end? There is one person, however, who is likely to believe every word of it, and that is the gentleman from Bath, who was the first individual to conceive the brilliant idea of giving away his family ghost as a Christmas present. Also, we have our enough of our own ghosts and skeletons. We don't need anyone else's, so... <laughs>
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a sensation at Clifton. Oh, wait, let's see what the, it's from. The Philadelphia Times, 21st of December, 1885. Sensation at Clifton. This would be Clifton, New Jersey, right? I think so. A Christmas ghost story which is not fiction. Seen first by Thomas Grady, who describes the specter's appearance believed to be the uneasy spirit of an ancient Indian brave. A ghost is Clifton's latest sensation, and the inhabitants of the town speak of it in cautious whispers as something which might be stolen by their envious neighbors were it known outside the town limits. Clifton is a pretty town on the media branch of the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore Railroad, eight miles from the Broad Street Station. At night when the moon does not shine, the village is wrapped in Egyptian darkness, which is relieved in spots known only to the older inhabitants by flickering gasoline lamps. The town goes to sleep at night when the last sound of the rumbling express train has died away and wakes up in the morning when the engine of the gravel train blows loud enough to arouse the railroad laborers along the line. But for the present, the people take no interest in the trains. They have given themselves over entirely to the new sensation and everything else is forgotten. Thomas Grady gets the credit of being the discoverer of the ghost, but there are several others who can give a better description of it than he, for they have seen it more frequently. Mr. Grady is a prominent citizen of the town and one of the owners of the shoddy and woolen mill on Darby Creek near Clifton Heights. Last Monday, just when the last glow of the sun on the western sky was blotted out by the darkness, Mr. Grady was on his way to the village from his mill. He had traveled the road a thousand times before, and instead of guiding his footsteps, he gave his thoughts to the business which was prospering under his direction. Just as he crossed Darby Creek to ascend Clifton Heights, a ghostly figure appeared before him. It was tall and its height seemed greater every moment. It was dressed in truly ghostly garb, a plain white sheet which covered it from crown to toe. A small tomahawk, or hatchet, Mr. Grady does not know which, was carried in the right hand, and from this fact the people said, as soon as they had heard the story, that it was a wandering spirit of an Indian warrior. Tradition has it that Clifton Heights was once the burying ground of all the Indians who inhabited the eastern part of Pennsylvania, from the Susquehanna River to the Delaware, and Isaiah Bowden, one of the oldest men in Delaware County, says a ghost has been seen on Clifton Heights once every 20 years since he was a boy. The Heights is a deep, wooded hill through which it runs a path, and within the last five days, the ghost has been seen by persons passing along there at least half a dozen times, according to their statements. The entire police force of Clifton, which consists of Officer Schofield, has been vigilantly investigating the case. Officer Schofield said yesterday that he had been working very hard to unravel the mystery. He had already run out a couple of clues, and he is at work on another. 
just what clues he expected to get on the movements of the ghost he did not state. Why, he said, the women and children are scared out of their wits, and as soon as it gets dark, even the men won't venture on the streets. I don't believe in ghosts myself, but there is them what do, (laughs) and their opinion has to be respected. And he walked aside and listened to a man who whispered to him in a confidential way while pointing with his thumb over his shoulder toward Clifton Heights. Yesterday afternoon, a crowd of old and young men sat around Ed McCran's barroom, and the ghost was the only subject referred to. They talked of how the coon hunting of James Dowling had been stopped just where he was catching more coons and possums than the whole of the Lenny Coon Club, of which Samuel Porter is at the head. Dowling went into the woods on Thursday night, and his dogs struck a trail which led them around Levis Mill and down to Darby Creek. Here the dogs lost his track. Dowling came up to them and urged them on. The trail was struck again, and the dogs started across Clifton Heights with Dowling close behind. But the dogs had not gone far when they returned, whining and trembling. Dowling had not heard the story of the ghost, but he said that he knew by the way the dogs acted that they had seen something, and he has not ventured in the woods since. Christmas is the time of year for giving, and if you're in such a mood, you could really help us out by becoming a patron at Patreon, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. It's a great way to help us with the show. Without our patrons, we couldn't even do Strange Familiars, so thank you, patrons. December, we did two episodes, two bonus episodes for our patrons. We guarantee we'll do at least one, and we always try to do more for our patrons. There are all different levels of support at Patreon. You can go and check it out, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. If you don't like the idea of a monthly subscription, there's a paypal.me link in the show notes of every episode at strangefamiliars.com. You can make a one-time donation that way. Everyone can help by sharing the show on social media, liking and subscribing wherever you're listening, and make sure to give us those nice five-star ratings because that helps get the show in front of new potential listeners. This is from the Cincinnati Enquirer, the 22nd of December, 1890. Christmas Ghost, Strange Story from the West End, the Mysterious Apparition in the Mill Creek Bottoms, which invariably appears about this time of year. For 20 years, the Christmas Ghost has appeared in the Mill Creek Bottoms. The exact time of its advent has never been fixed beyond the fact that it always shows itself on a few days before December 25th. The date varies, but as far back as the record goes, the specter has walked forth on some night within a week of Christmas. The residents of that portion of the city invariably, as the day draws nigh, watch for the appearance of the supernatural stranger and try to trace its wanderings in the bottoms. As the story goes, the ghost was in life a robber, a member of a gang which plundered one of the old state banks. It was credited with having taken $300,000 in cash, besides securities and other valuables. Among the articles stolen was a very thin clock that had stood on the mantelpiece in the president's room. The robbery created a great sensation at the time and was the talk of the day. The money was never recovered. There was no trace to the robbers and the crime was almost forgotten when one day some boys playing in the bottoms, then out of the city in virtually a wilderness, found the clock. The finding of an article of this kind in such an out-of-the-way place naturally aroused much curiosity and the timepiece was soon recognized as the clock stolen from the bank. This started the story, which has since become a tradition of the West End, that the stolen money was also buried near where the clock was found. 
Many searching parties have been organized to hunt for the hidden treasure, but like Captain Kidd's cave, it has never been discovered. In recent years, as the country thereabouts became populated, the story had almost died away, and is rarely mentioned except by the older residents as one of the fairy tales of the last generation. It is told that one of the robbers died in prison. The entire gang had been captured soon after the robbery and sent to the penitentiary to serve long terms of imprisonment. They had none of the money when arrested, and refused to reveal what they had done with it. The popular supposition was that they buried it. Soon after the robber's death, the report became current that the spirit had returned to earth and haunted the spot where the gang had buried their plunder. It is a matter of fact that many people living in this portion of the city have stoutly claimed to see the ghost, which they describe as of many shapes. The singular thing is that it never appears except on Christmas or a few days before. Fifteen minutes before twelve o'clock last Friday night, Fred Hoytage was walking along Jeff Street near Evans. He was on the plank sidewalk when suddenly appeared in front of him a big white ball fully five feet high. He was, of course, startled by the strange apparition. It moved diagonally across the street and disappeared down the embankment. He ran to the place, but he could see nothing. He told about his experience and was surprised to learn that John Byer, a young man living in the neighborhood, had seen the same sight half an hour before. Byler described the object as having the shape of a deformed cow. He ran to the adjacent saloon and persuaded four men to accompany him to the place. When he returned, however, the thing had gone. The stories told by Hoytage and Byer spread rapidly and were generally discussed Saturday and yesterday in the West End near the creek. Many of the older residents recall the tales told of the Christmas ghost and the dead robber. Seven years ago, it was plainly seen by several persons and seemed to beckon them to follow, but disappeared in the mist when they advanced. It had shown itself at five different times since then, but always around Christmas. So strong is the belief in the story that persons are watching every night at, at the Justin Evans streets from 11 until 1 in the morning. Of course, many regard it as a joke, but there are others who most seriously declare that this ghost, or whatever it is, makes its appearance every year, and certainly will be seen this Christmas night. Many of the night watchmen in the neighborhood have given up their jobs. The reappearance of the ghost is most anxiously awaited. So here are some ghost stories that are an excerpt from a larger article which appeared in the Buffalo Courier, the 21st of December, 1890. Johnson and Emily, or the Faithful Ghost I was little more than a lad when I first met with Johnson. I was home for the Christmas holidays, and, it being Christmas Eve, I had been allowed to sit up very late. On opening the door of my little bedroom to go in, I found myself face to face with Johnson, who was coming out. It passed through me and uttering a long, low wail of misery, disappeared out of the staircase window. I was startled for a moment. I was only a schoolboy at the time, and had never seen a ghost before, and felt a little nervous about going to bed. But on reflection, I remembered that it was only sinful people that spirits could do any harm to, and so tucked myself up and went to sleep. In the morning, I told the painter that what I had seen. Oh yes, that was old Johnson, he answered. Don't you be frightened of that. He lives here. And then he told me the poor thing's history. It seemed that Johnson, when it was alive, had loved in early life the daughter of a former lessee of the house, and a very beautiful girl, whose Christian name had been Emily. Father did not know her other name. Johnson was too poor to marry the girl, so he kissed her goodbye, told her he would soon be back, and went off to Australia to make his fortune. But Australia was not then what it became later on. 
Travelers through the bush were few and far between in those early days, and even when one was caught, the portable property found upon the body was often of hardly sufficient negotiable value to pay the simple funeral expenses rendered necessary, so that it took Johnson nearly twenty years to make his fortune. The self-imposed task was accompanied at last, however, and then, having successfully eluded the police and got clear out of the colony, he returned to England, full of hope and joy, to claim his bride. He reached the house to find it silent and deserted. All that the neighbors could tell him was that soon after his own departure, the family had, on one foggy night, unostentatiously disappeared, and that nobody had ever seen or heard anything of them since, although the landlord and most of the local tradesmen had made searching inquiries. Poor Johnson, frenzied with grief, sought his love all over the world, but he never found her, and after years of fruitless effort, he returned to end his lonely life in the very house where, in the happy bygone days, he and his beloved Emily had passed so many blissful hours. He had lived there quite alone, wandering about the empty rooms, weeping and calling to Emily to come back to him, and when the poor old fellow died, his ghost still kept the business on. It was there, the potter said, when he took the house and the agent and knocked ten pounds a year off the rent in consequence. After that, I was continually meeting Johnson about the place at all times of night, and so indeed were we all. We used to walk round it and stand beside it to let it pass at first, but when we grew more at home with it, and there seemed no necessity for so much ceremony, we used to walk straight through it. You could not say it was ever much in the way. It was a gentle, harmless old ghost, too, and we all felt very sorry for it and pitied it. The women folk, indeed, made quite a pet of it for a while. Its faithfulness touched them so. But as time went on, it grew to be a bit of a bore. You see, it was so full of sadness. There was nothing cheerful or genial about it. You felt sorry for it, but it irritated you. It would sit on the stairs and cry for hours at a stretch. And whenever we woke up in the night, one was sure to hear it pattering about the passages and in and out of the different rooms, moaning and sighing, so that we could not get to sleep again very easily. And when we had a party, on it would come, and sit outside the drawing-room door, and sob all the time. It did not do anybody any harm exactly, but it cast a gloom over the whole affair. Oh, I'm getting sick of this old fool, said the painter one evening. The dad can be very blunt when he is put out, as you know. After Johnson had been more of a nuisance than usual, and had spoiled a good game by sitting up the chimney and groaning till nobody knew what were trumps or what suit had even been led. We shall have to get rid of him somehow or another. I wish I knew how to do it. Well, said the Major, depend upon it, you'll never see the last of him until he found Emily's grave. That's what he is after. You find Emily's grave, and put him onto that, and he'll stop there. That's the only thing to do. You mark my words. The idea seemed reasonable, but the difficulty in the way was that none of us knew where Emily's grave was any more than the ghost of Johnson himself did. The governor suggested palming off some other Emily's grave upon the poor thing, but as luck would have it, there did not seem to have been an Emily of any sort buried anywhere for miles around. I never came across a neighborhood so utterly destitute of dead Emilies. I thought for a bit, and then hazarded a suggestion myself. Couldn't we fake up something for the old chap? I queried. He seems a simple-minded old sort. He might take it in. Anyhow, we could try. By Jove, so we will, exclaimed my father. And the very next morning, we had the workmen in and fixed up a little mound at the bottom of the orchard, with a tombstone over it bearing the following inscription, sacred to the memory of Emily. Her last words were, tell Johnson I love him. That ought to fetch him, used the dud, as he surveyed the work and then finished. I'm sure, I hope it does. It did. We lured him down there that very night. Well, there was one of the most pathetic things I've ever seen, the way Johnson sprang upon that tombstone and wept. Dad and old Squibbins, the gardener, cried like children when they saw it. 
Johnson has never troubled us any more in the house since then. It spends every night now sobbing on the grave and seems quite happy. There still? Oh yes, I'll take you fellows down and show you the next time you come to our place. 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. are its general hours, 10 to 2 o'clock on Saturdays. So this you're going to read because it's a deal, which is your maiden name. And this comes from the Potter Enterprise from the 22nd of January, 1902. Battle with a Spectre. Legend of strange fight in a graveyard many years ago. Among the old legends of witchcraft and dealings with his satanic majesty, which to this day are told about the rural firesides of Lehigh County, Pennsylvania, there is one that has been handed down from generation to generation until many good citizens of the older generation believe in its truthfulness. The man that cannot relate at least one strange and unaccountable thing that has happened in grandfather's time is the exception rather than the rule. These tales, as a general thing, refer to hexerai or witchcraft, but in a number of instances they are even more closely allied with his sooty and satanic majesty. <laughs> the tale in question, even at this late day, is repeated by white-haired men and women and listened to by the younger people until the chills play golf up and down their spinal columns. During the period of the Revolution, it was customary for the youth of Salisbury Township to gather at a tavern and discuss the potables in vogue at that time. At the time referred to, before high license laws and law and order societies required hotel keepers to keep closed on Sunday, a tavern kept by a man named Geis was a favorite resort of the young men. Newspapers were a scarce article in those days, and the farmers would congregate at the public house to bear the latest happenings. That is, some of them came for this purpose, while others came to discuss the merits of landlord Geis's Applejack and West India rum, which in those days formed the favored tipple of the people of this vicinity as the seductive Manhattan cocktail and gin Ricky were still undiscovered. The afternoons passed by peaceably enough, but toward evening disputes usually arose, and the disputants generally repaired to the field adjoining the tavern, and there concluded their argument with bare knuckles. It was a dull day indeed if no scrap was pulled off, and the good people of the neighborhood looked for a fight with the same regularity that they listened for the welcome sound of the dinner bell. A fair and square fight was not regarded with the same feelings of horror as is the case at the present time, and a man did not lose his church membership by indulging in one. When the fight was over, that was supposed to end the quarrel, and the participants expected to make up to forgive and forget. As a general thing, this principle was adhered to. One man, however, failed to abide by this unwritten law, and carried his grudge to the grave of his enemy, and thereby hangs this tale. As a result of one of these Sunday afternoon gatherings at the tavern, a man named Deal and another named Smith had a dispute. They went outside to settle it in the approved fashion. The fight was long and furious, and when Deal shouted, Gnunk, enough, he presented the appearance of having gone through a steam thrashing machine. If steam thrashers had been in existence in those days, and in sporting patois, he was put out of business. The fruits of victory were not, however, long enjoyed by Smith. It was a bitter cold day in December, and during the contest, he overheated himself and caught a cold, which developed to pneumonia, and he died. His body was interred in the graveyard connected with the old eastern Salisbury church. Several days after the funeral came Christmas Day, and a larger number than usual gathered at the tavern. Among them was Deal, who still bore the marks of the fight with the man whose body filled the newly made grave in the little churchyard half a mile distant. The sting of defeat was still felt by him, and the pain was made more acute by the taunts of his acquaintances. He sought to drown his sorrow in liberal draughts of rum, but all to no avail. He felt himself disgraced, and he was in a revengeful mood. 
It was past the midnight hour when Deal and a neighbor started for their homes. Deal was considerably under the influence of liquor and heaped imprecations on the head of his dead foe. Their road took them past the graveyard, and when they arrived at the burying grounds, Deal was in a frenzy. The memory of the drubbing he received made him wild, and leaping across the fence, he entered the cemetery. Going at once to the newly made grave, he, with fearful blasphemy, dared Smith to arise from his grave and fight him then and there. What really happened, his companion could not relate. He said a fiery demon appeared, and then he fled in terror from the graveyard. Next morning, the man told his neighbor of the happenings of the previous night. A party was formed which visited the churchyard. At the grave, there was evidence of a struggle which continued to the stone wall, and in a clump of trees nearby, they found portions of clothing and marks of blood in the snow and the prints of cloven feet or hooves. Clots of blood adhered to the trees, the bark of some of the latter being torn off as if by desperation, while on the uppermost branches hung pieces of flesh. Some even claimed they smelled brimstone. Ridiculous as the story may sound in this age, those who are skeptical have never been able to explain one thing, and that is what became of Deal. He was never seen or heard of again by family or friends, and his disappearance is one of the mysteries of Salisbury Township. For many years, the old churchyard was avoided as a haunted spot and permitted to go into decay. In 1843, however, a new brick church was erected on the site of the old structure, in which services are held every Sunday. Notwithstanding this, the legend of Salisbury causes that creepy feeling with many people. This is an excerpt of an article from the San Francisco Call, the 5th of January, 1913. Mr. Britton gives a sketch of Uncle John Spaulding, the famous stage driver of these mountains, who might have stepped out of the pages of Bret Hart as the prototype of Yuba Bill. It is a tradition of the mountain wild that on winter nights, Uncle John is still seen driving his ghostly galloping team with the jingling bells and harness in headlong fashion over the precipitous curves of the Sierra and Magnuson. The dam tender tells this story. Last Christmas Eve, proceeds the brave lake tender, long about twelve o'clock at night, I had gone out to the valve house on the dam to be sure everything was all right, as it had been freezing hard all day, the thermometer down to about twelve. When I saw up the lake, in between those two dead pines near where Fort Ice Creek comes in, a peculiar light that extended up the hill toward Signal Peak, and coming along that line of light was what appeared to be a wagon, with horses at full gallop. Soon it came nearer and nearer, the light always followed it like a spotlight on the stage, until it reached the lake, and then I saw it was an old stagecoach with six horses, and as it neared the dam, my blood froze, for I recognized Uncle John on the seat, his eyes fixed on the canyon below, and he drove right past me, right past me, I tell you, and in another instant, the whole outfit disappeared right over the spillway. Oh, I was scared. I don't remember how I got back home, but I tell you, I've been shivering ever since. Irish Standard, from Minneapolis, Minnesota, the 9th of January, 1904. They don't have a Norwegian standard this could be in? Yeah, right. I mean. <laughs> a true Christmas ghost story. The Christmas Royal contains some true ghost stories edited and selected by the Duke of Argyll. They were sent to the Royal in response to the editor's request in the January number, which contained the Duke of Argyll's article, Can We See Ghosts? They are all good, and here is one of the best. A man was sitting in a hansom, drawn up at the end of the street, when his attention was attracted by a figure walking towards him. There was something distinctly peculiar about the gait of this person. 
He walked with stiff, jerky movements, suggestive to the man in the cab of an automatic figure. As he approached the hansom, its occupant caught a glimpse of his countenance. It was the face of a corpse. So struck was he with the man's appearance that he looked back, saw him go to a house a few yards further on, and knock. It was opened by a maid, who, on catching sight of the visitor, gave a loud scream and slammed the door. There was no mistake, then, about the extraordinary corpse-like appearance. The figure next walked across the street to another house, fitted a latchkey, and entered. Above the door, the word apartments was displayed. Noticing this, the gentleman in the cab on the following day went to the house and inquired who lived there. The landlady replied that there was no one there but herself. No one possessing a latchkey, the gentleman inquired. No, she replied. Only my lodgers possess latchkeys, and I have had none for some weeks. The gentleman who formerly had my rooms has just been shot in South Africa. I heard the news yesterday. This is from the Adams County News, the 14th of October, 1916. Still believe in ghost story. South Mountain sticks to old tradition is again brought to light. Ghosts and spirits are still at large on South Mountain, according to a Montalto correspondent who says, Do you know that far back in the early history of Montalto, an Indian was supposed to have gold hid here along the South Mountain? And have you ever heard old folks tell the story how his wandering spirit was supposed to travel along the mountain a short while before Christmas and give the Indian war whoop as it went along? Well, that story has come down through the ages and lasted up until the Montalto furnace went into the hands of a receiver, and ever after we are supposed to hear the yell if we would listen. The story goes that when the Indian died, there was no one close by to break the news of the buried treasure, hence his restless time in the happy hunting grounds. Folks in the early days there sought to find the treasure, but it never came out that they did. And yet you never hear that the Indian gives his war whoop this modern day. It can hardly be that he and Lewis the robber, who once trailed these mountains, have formed an alliance never to tell. This is from the Press Herald, Pine Grove, Pennsylvania, 31st of August, 1906. They tell us that in Lancaster and Lebanon County, there are many people who believe in hexeri, that a snake milks a cow, that the snake can charm a child into daily bringing it food and drink, that warts rubbed by a piece of bacon, the bacon being buried under the eaves of the house, will remove warts, that if you listen to oxen on Christmas Eve, you will hear them talk, often of yourself, that the chronology is mixed, that a rattlesnake's skin is good for rheumatism. There are also to be found people who paint at certain seasons without regard to the conditions of the soil, who would not cut grass or grain, who would not even sow before a certain date, no matter what the condition of the grass or soil, who in short are doing things under the operations of the laws of superstition, whatever they may be. And in the rule of three, which is not in the least what we moderns believe, they still have implicit faith. Thank you for joining me for this Christmas show. <laughs> Happy holidays, whatever holidays uh, you celebrate. Will you be back soon, Alison? Can yeah. We, can we expect you back soon? I'm just taking a long Festivus break. <laughs> <laughs> People have been asking for you. I tell you, they've been suspicious. Where's Allison? Where's Allison? Probably sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks everybody for listening. 
we'll see you in 2020 with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. You can also join the Strange Familiars gathering group there. And we are on Instagram, at strangefamiliars. Who hung upon a tree And he is our king Yes
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.